The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turning in God's Word to the book of Luke, where we were for quite a long time, I skipped a particular incident in Luke because I knew that we would be spending these few weeks in emphasis on stewardship, and one of the most famous stewardship texts is at the beginning of Luke 21. This morning I read just a short passage from the end of chapter 20, verse 45, through 21, verse 4. The Gospel of Luke, it is Jesus who will be speaking primarily in this passage. And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses And for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is God's Word. Today is a bit of a milestone in our journey in stewardship that we have called Pursuing God's Plan here at Westminster. If you're here for the first time, you've come in on something, or we have been communicating for weeks about a goal that we might seek to eliminate in three years instead of 10, a remaining $4 million mortgage on our property, all with a reason that we could refocus on ministry and put more concentration and resources on ministry to make it even stronger in the future. I've had evidences just in the last couple of weeks of how certain staff issues and other things would be greatly advantaged if we could get to that point and make those and fund those changes. Now, next Sunday, May 13th, is Mother's Day, and it is also what we're calling Commitment Sunday, a day in which we're hoping that many of you will bring with you a commitment card that is going to arrive in your mail this week if you're on the church mailing list, and that you will have prayed and considered if you might be able to indicate an intention of helping this endeavor. Now, I have an announcement to tell you of something that is very directly related. Your officers and leaders, leaders in the broadest sense of the word, not just the elders and deacons and deaconesses, but teachers and workers and committee members and home fellowship leaders and others who take on 
responsible tasks have been called and invited to seven different gatherings in the past month. And many of them have been able to come to those where they have been challenged and asked to consider how they might lead the way in this endeavor. If you remember a few weeks ago, I preached from First Chronicles 28 where David called together all the officers of Israel, the priests, the military leaders, the political leaders, and having given a gift himself to the building of the temple, he asked them to give, which they did generously, and then the people responded in an overwhelming way once they had seen what their leaders had done. We think that's a good principle. Walmart, the treasurer has reported to me that 90 households of leadership people have indicated some definite response, and of course others will still have that opportunity. But 90 households out of more than 600 households that support this ministry have responded. Now, they represent about 15% of all of our people that ever give anything during the year to support this ministry. That 15% or 90 households has told us they will give over the next three years $1.7 million to the debt reduction fund. You're entitled to say glory to God. You're entitled to say amen. That's a great thing. Let me put that in perspective for you. We've twice before had three-year programs. We've asked for faith promises of this type. Early in, I believe the first was 03 through 05, and then 06 to 08. Neither of those programs exceeded this amount for the whole program, for the whole church. So 90 households have exceeded those programs. In fact, the $1.7 million is more than has been actually given by the whole congregation the last three years of record to debt reduction. Take that in perspective. 90 households have said, we will carry the mortgage for the next three years. We don't need quite that much even to pay it. That will pay extra principal. 90 households will carry it. Now the challenge over this next week leading to next Sunday is going to the 85% of you. What will you do? Just think, anything you can do will actually go not to make mortgage payments that are required, but to pay off the principal. I ask you to pray, and we ask God to lead you. That's what this is all about. It's not about pressure. You're not going to receive any. It's about prayer. Now, we turn to Luke 20 and 21. And you might think I have an oddly titled sermon today. It's one I thought a lot about when I titled it. What do I mean about pursuing an eloquent sacrifice? What I'm thinking about is the common expression that people say, Money talks. It talks in a lot of different ways. Our giving talks. I've always said if you knew what was in a person's checkbook ledger or what was charged against their Visa card in a given month or whatever, you would learn a lot about that person. You would learn about what they value. You would learn about how they amuse themselves. You might learn how they waste money or how they use it well. The dictionary says the adjective eloquent, describes speech that is especially fluent, forceful, 
or effective. So I am thinking about a sacrifice of giving that is especially fluent, forceful, or effective in what it says about the giver. And I want to look at two of these that are here in this short passage of Scripture and then tell you a modern-day application that I think will bring this passage alive to you. First of all, I ask you to see eloquent hypocrisy from the religious leadership. Now, when I was reminded of the passage here in verse 46, I almost had to reach out. I have a new pulpit robe on order. It's coming. I haven't got it yet. This one's pretty tattered. And I was reading about these guys wearing their long robes and thinking, oh my goodness, I wonder if I need to uh, retract some behavior or something here. But Jesus was indicting the scribes who in their long robes, which were, by the way, very colorful, designed to call attention to them, whereas we wear a robe to take attention away from ourselves and on the office of the authority of the Word of God. Here were men, Jesus said, the clergy of the day who loved basically to strut. And that's what they did when they came into the temple. They strutted. They made sure they were seen. They expected to be greeted by all kinds of honorific titles. You know, the right reverend, doctor, holiness, three times removed, something or other. And they expected to be addressed that way. They were ambitious. They postured at social occasions, expecting to be seated where everybody could see them. And they made conscious efforts to imply they were not normal human beings, let alone common day sinners. Now, something you need to know about these guys as they came and gave their rather lavish and visible offerings, as Jesus and the others watched, was how offerings were received in the Jerusalem temple. It's described actually outside the scripture, not in any passage of scripture, but we know how, what they used there. They had 13 brass or bronze receptacles that got the nickname trumpets. They came to be called trumpets because of their shape. They had sort of a large bell-shaped container at the bottom that held the money, and it rose up into a, a neck with a small opening that you would drop. Of course, I guess the idea was you couldn't reach down in there and get the money out. It had to be unlocked at the bottom or something. But these were metallic brass containers. They were designated each for, you know, one might be an offering for the poor. The next one might be for the, you know, the articles used in sacrifice or something. The next one might be for the priests. And people would come and toss their coins, their metallic money. I don't think there was paper money in those days into these brass containers, which you can imagine. If you brought the right coins in the right quantity, you could really put on not just a visible, but a very audible display. You know, you could stop by at the local money changer and say, give me the big ones. I want some of the big ones. I'm going to the temple to make an impression. Nobody would say that, of course, but they might think it. And that we would understand is what these fellows were doing. They were coming and making quite a stand, quite a display out of the fact that here I am, notice me, and there was this loud, clanging, ringing effect as they gave their offerings. Well, Jesus says these people were blatant hypocrites. 
He condemns them in many places other than this passage. That anyone who makes of their religion simply a sham to posture, to get attention, to be applauded, is worse than if he had never even tried to do that in the first place. He's a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone serving himself only. Well, that's one kind of eloquent offering because it spoke a lot about the people and what they were made of, the people who made the offering. But now go quickly to 21, 1 to 4, this common passage we all know about the little widow who came, and here's the eloquent sacrifice of a poor widow. I think you can assume a contrast that nobody really noticed her. They noticed the scribes. They were absolutely noticeable in their colorful robes. They wanted to be noticed. Along creeps a little widow who comes with two copper coins, the cheapest coin. It was called a lepton. It's a fraction of our penny if you want an equivalent value. So two of them don't even equal a penny. Now, widows in the first century generally in in the Jewish culture were cared for once a husband had died in the home of a son, a brother, a nephew, some relative who was expected to show charity and take the widow in and provide for her. They didn't generally have to live in the street. So you don't necessarily have to think this widow was sleeping in the gutter because she brought her her two leptons, part of a scent. But what she did do was give everything that was in her possession. She probably had a roof to sleep under that night, but she had no cash, nothing in her hand or her pocket whatsoever to spend on for herself once she had given. These two coins that you can imagine just kind of slipped in and you'd really have to be listening to hear any sound that those coins made. But Jesus heard the sound and he noticed what she did. And his noticing her and praising her in the way that he does reminds us of what Hebrews chapter 4 says. Hebrews 4.13, all things are exposed and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It seems to me that it says God sees your giving. Jesus Christ saw this woman's giving even though she was the most inconspicuous person there. He sees it because he knows what kind of people we are. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. And he knows that our giving speaks eloquently about the people that we really are. And he commended her. Look what he says. He says, this widow put in more than anyone else because they gave from their abundance basically what they would never miss. She gave out of poverty everything that she had. Now go back a minute and remember what I told you just a few minutes ago about 90 households at Westminster committing $1.7 million. You're capable of math. I think I just, for, for hypothetical sake, did the division, and if every one of those 90 households had given equally, I think it's around $18,000 a household. Check me out if you want to. Obviously, not everybody gave $18,000. Some people gave an amount with a lot of zeros. More than a few people probably gave an amount with a lot of zeros. Some might have given a thousand. Some might have given ten. I don't know. It's not my business to know. But the point is, 
God saw every gift. And he saw what that gift represented in terms of speaking with eloquence about who that person was before him. I read something C.S. Lewis said years ago. I quote him. He wrote, If offerings to God never pinch or hamper our little luxuries, then they probably are too small. Lewis said there ought to be things we should like to do but cannot do because our offerings to the Lord exclude them. Using myself as an example, and I do it, I hope you understand, not to draw praise because honestly I don't think what I'm going to tell you draws any praise. It almost makes me look kind of foolish. But when I was thinking about how would I respond and talking with my wife, how would we respond to this appeal to pursuing God's plan, I discussed with Carol and said, you know, as I've had time to think about this, we could give just something additional out of abundance because we still have abundance that's not obliged to a bill every month. But I wonder if we shouldn't think about something that would actually change our behavior or change our life a little bit at least. A sacrifice begins to be that which actually changes your life. Now, here's my example that I raise. And again, it doesn't raise me for praise because it makes me laugh at myself. I'm driving a seven-year-old car. It's a very nice car. I've had no difficulties with it. It's not even at 100,000 miles yet. But I'm an American male. And my father, by example, trained me that when an American male hits five, six, seven years with a car... It's time for a new car. And in fact, this car is almost the longest I've ever owned, one car. Now, I was thinking, and I said to my wife, what if we gave to pursuing God's plan in some way that just changed our behavior? I was going to go and get a new car this year and wouldn't have had any problem doing that. The loan would have gone right through. They would have been delighted to loan it to me and so on. But I said to Carol, what if we just don't get a new car for the duration of Westminster's mortgage? What if I park that seven-year-old, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old car in the same spot every year until the mortgage is paid and we give Westminster what the car payment might have been? That's what I'm committed to do. Again, if you think that brings praise to me, I'm sorry because I think it makes me look kind of dumb. If I consider that a sacrifice, what kind of a sacrifice is it to live in the richest society in the world and end up driving a 10-year-old car? Not much. But ladies and gentlemen, I think God wants us to give out of what our lives are and our habits are, not just out of what's there in abundance on the table. Many have discovered that when a giver makes a life-altering gift, there's power in the gift. Now, my time is shorter today because of communion, and I'm going to use the rest of my time to tell you a story, a longer story than usual. It's an absolutely true story. People in it are real. The church is real. It was told to us by Joel Michael, who has helped to lead our stewardship program. Listen to this story. The scene is in a church a few years ago, the Gloria Dei Lutheran Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, a place probably most of us have never been, but it's a real place. A small church there 
Lutheran Church was going to add a wing to have nurseries and more children's space and youth space to engage and enlarge their ministry to the young people of the church. And it was going to cost more than a million dollars, which was a big challenge for a small church. Along the way of their stewardship program, they decided that each week for quite a few weeks, they would have a member take a few minutes in the service and give a personal testimony about why they supported the program or what they might think of doing, not necessarily that they had to announce a dollar amount, but why they thought this was a good idea to build morale, I guess, towards the giving. So one week by invitation, a young single mother in her 20s shared her story about sacrificial giving. I want you to listen to it. She's a real person. I don't know her name. She said to the congregation, when I heard that our church might build a wing to benefit our young people and children's ministry and youth ministry, I was really excited. For as you know, I have two young girls. I'm their sole support. I'm their mom. They live with me. And I knew that my girls would benefit from this once it was accomplished in every way for years to come. So I thought to myself right away, well, I give my tithe to the church I'm so excited about that new wing, I'm going to just split my tithe check that I've been giving and give half of it to the building program and half to the regular budget. But then she said, I heard that, no, I shouldn't do that because then I'd actually be hurting the budget of the church. I needed to give over and above whatever I'm giving now. And she said, I was very sad when I heard that. And the pastor said we were to pray about a sacrificial gift. I thought, oh, no way could I give a sacrificial gift. She said, let me tell you why. I'm a single mom. I'm not yet 30 years old. I work nine hours a day. I earn not that much more than minimum wage. My days are hard. I have to care for my girls. I get up at 5.30 in the morning, get myself ready for work, get my girls up, dress them, feed them, take them to my mother's house, go to work, put in a long day, Go get the girls, reverse the whole procedure all over again, get them to bed, and maybe I get an hour or two to myself after housework to read my Bible before I go to sleep, and then back at it again the next day. She said, I sure don't have much. I live in a small apartment. My car has more rust on its finish than paint, and it needs engine repairs. I can't afford I don't make enough money to ever go to a beauty salon. My mother cuts my hair. Our clothes come from the Goodwill store. So when you look at my life, how should I sacrifice to help the Lord's work? I give a small tithe. How could I do more? And then this young mom said she prayed. She said, the pastor asked us to pray if there was some way we could perhaps sacrifice from our lifestyle. So I did. And she said, after I prayed for a few days, I became convicted that there was a luxury in my life that I could give up. Near my work is a hamburger place with a 99-cent menu. And I gave myself the indulgence five days a week to go to that restaurant and pick a 99-cent menu item And then I would get a cup of ice water because it was free and I didn't have to pay for the drink. And paying 99 cents for my lunch, I would enjoy it each day at work. 
She said, I prayed and I thought, I don't need that. I could give that up and I would have $5 a week that I could give to the youth ministry, expand the children's ministry of our church. And $5 a week times 36 months is $780. So she said, my commitment is $780. I can do without lunch. Because the most important things in my life are my relationship to God, my children, and my church. This is a small sacrifice for me to make for our ministry to go forward. And she sat down. And there was a heavy silence because the people thought God must have spoken. The next Sunday, a businessman from the church had his turn. How would you like to follow the act he had to follow? The businessman, prosperous guy, doing well, owned a Main Street business in the small town, got up and he was ready to testify and he said, when the pastor asked me to share about what I would do and why I supported this program, I plan to tell you I'm 100% for it and I'm so much for it that I was ready to give $10,000 and I was going to tell you that. And then she spoiled it. He pointed to the young mother. She spoiled it. I heard this mom say that she would give up lunches for three years to give $780. And I thought to myself, I could write out my $10,000 check with absolutely no pain. I wouldn't give up a breakfast, a lunch, a dinner, a new suit, a new car, a vacation, improvements to my home, or anything. And God had me. Because this past week I've struggled, folks, to say what is a sacrifice to me. When have I ever given in a way that has changed my lifestyle? And I'm not sure I've figured out yet, the man said, what that would be. He said, I'm thinking it's going to be five times what I plan to give, but I'm not even sure if that's really going to affect my lifestyle. So here's what I'm asking today. Would you all pray for me so I can define what sacrifice is in my life? And he sat down. According to the pastor, that small church topped their $1 million-plus building fund goal by just a bit more than $500. Think about that. $780 put them over the goal. But not only was that gift significant enough to do that, you can imagine that that gift was the one, the $780 gift was the one that inspired numerous members of that congregation probably to multiply their gifts many times over. Small sacrifices count. Big sacrifices count. God is interested to know how our lives are going to speak eloquently for his cause. And the pastor of that Lutheran church said, our church was never so unified any time in our history as in that period of time when a young mother said, I'll give up lunch, and a businessman said, pray for me so I could figure out what sacrifice means. Money speaks. God doesn't want our cash, 
as much as he wants us. Do you understand what I'm talking about with an eloquent sacrifice? One that speaks of a life that belongs to Christ. So when you get a mailing from the church this week, we're only asking you to do one thing. Read what it says. Pray for two or three days. And if you're convinced that this has nothing to do with your life, throw it in the wastebasket. If you're convicted that God might want you to respond, do so as the Holy Spirit leads. Let's pray together. Father, there's so many ways in which you know us. You see us from afar. You know what prompts us. You, you know what's in our mind when the pen is in hand, poised over the checkbook for a Sunday offering. You know us all together. I thank and praise you for that young mom in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I don't know her name, but she's a real person. I pray that you would bless her and keep on blessing people like her who belong to you, heart and soul and pocketbook. And may that be said of all of us, that our lives, our offerings, our words, our service, our time, as we use it, would praise your name. Amen.